This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Eric Hosser has spent his entire career working in software engineering. Beginning with stack development and ending up in management, Eric is currently working for Drone Deploy, a San Francisco-based startup that develops drone technology. Legend Eric sat down to discuss Drone Deploy's business model and how the company focuses on developing drone software as opposed to drone hardware. With commercial drones becoming increasingly affordable, the focus has shifted to developing more advanced software for data collection purposes. Eric also offers his perspective on remote working, noting how he's glad it's brought cognitive diversity to his team. With a geographically diverse workforce comes an array of perspectives that ultimately leads to products that work great for a diverse user base. Eric, good to have you, man. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Can you give uh, you know your quick biography and a couple minutes on uh, you and your work? Let the uh, listeners get to know you a little bit. Sure thing. Yeah, I've been uh, doing software engineering uh, my entire career. Uh, started out as a you know a developer and uh, built uh, some uh, full stack applications and back end applications and. Uh, was doing that for the uh, first part of my career and then jumped into the uh, engineering management uh, realm. Uh, always was kind of jumping back and forth. And I think maybe about seven or eight years ago, I went into management uh, full time and have had an opportunity to work for uh, a few great companies since then. I've uh, worked for a company called Exact Target, uh, which was a uh, kind of probably the first marketing cloud company uh, that existed. And we uh, IPO'd and in uh, maybe about 2012, I think we IPO'd and then got acquired by Salesforce. Uh, and I spent a number of years at Salesforce uh, running their IoT uh, engineering initiatives. Uh, we had an opportunity to work with some really great people there. And uh, then a couple years ago, I uh, took over engineering at a uh, company called Drone Deploy, which is a, uh, a Series C startup here in uh, San Francisco focused on um, bringing uh, you know, job, bringing intelligence to job sites through the use of drones and uh, aerial imagery and uh, and other assets. So, I've uh, been doing a been doing a lot. Of, had a, had an opportunity to do a lot in engineering and uh, really enjoy the space and uh, and enjoy working with the people and enjoy uh, building cool things. Yeah. So, talk about the IoT stuff, man. Um, you know, I'm just interested. I'm sure everybody wants to know. You know, what's the actual stack that goes into the whole drone business? You know, I, I think everybody a couple of years ago for Christmas wanted to get into drones, and then commercial, you know, really started to take off over the last like 15 months, maybe. And um, just curious what that looks like. Like, what's what's the full stack and and the the technology deployment look like to make that actually work on a commercial scale? Yeah, the I mean the drone hardware has really come along very quickly over the course of the, the last couple of years. Uh, when DJI kind of released the original Phantom Two, that was the first you know quadcopter that was really available and could be used you know on a mass on a mass market scale. Uh, and since then, they've just continued. Really, DJI has just really continued to enhance the drones uh, in the space to the point now to where you can get a uh, a drone that can be used commercially for, you know, relatively inexpensive. I think the Phantom 4 Pro runs about $1,500 now, uh, and you can buy them at Best Buy and all of these other places. And so 
At Drone Deploy, we've been lucky. Uh, the, the company really started on a strategy where they basically saw that the opportunity in the drone space was in software and not in hardware. Um, there were kind of a number of early early startups in the space, such as you know, Airware and 3DR. We were also focused a lot on the, like the hardware side, and and Drone Deploy kind of always saw the the opportunity as really as more of a traditional SaaS uh, business in in the drone space. And so uh, we we were lucky to have a great partner in DJI that we work with um, to deliver a really great end to end experience. Uh, and you know, but we also process imagery from other drones uh, as well. But generally speaking, the kind of the stack and the way that we think about, you know, the drone space is, you know, there's, there's really kind of three steps, you know, the flight aspect, processing the data, and then, you know, analysis of the data and, you know, analysis side, we think about reporting and analytics and all of those general things. Uh, and to do all of those things, it's actually a fairly complicated tech stack, uh, which was one of the one of the things I learned when I arrived at, uh, at, at Drone Deploy. So... Uh, you have to support, uh, we have a mobile application uh, for both iOS and Android that we support for uh, basically flight out in the field that allows pilots to go out. And, uh, you know, effectively the way that it works is you you walk out into a field and you draw a box around an area and you hit a button and then the drone does all the magic. It takes off, grabs, grabs its assets, comes back, lands at your feet. Uh, so, you know, anybody can effectively capture data uh, with drone deploy uh, and then, you know, we process a ton of imagery, I think, uh, somewhere in the range of, uh, you know, approximately about eight to 10 million images of drone images a month. Uh, and so when you think about, uh, each one of those images, generally, generally like a 20 megapixel camera, it's about seven and a half megs. The photo would be, uh, so we have, we have, uh, probably I think in the range of about four petabytes worth of drone data, uh, today. Uh, and then we actually process all of that data on, um, in, in order to make maps. So, you know, when, when somebody will send us anywhere from, let's say 50 to up to 10,000 of those images. And then we actually stitch all of those together into a map where we create 2d models, 3d models, uh, digital train models, digital service models, and a ton of other interesting assets that we can actually create from that data. Uh, so that also requires a lot of processing horsepower. Uh, to do that, and that's uh, so probably could have a whole uh, whole entire discussion about that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of that's kind of the general uh, the general uh, like overview of the stack, and we could obviously dive deeper into some of the technical details as, as interesting. Yeah, how's it get from? So you got the the onboard camera. I guess you're not doing. Is it wireless or or no? You have to take the media out of the the drone, or how's all that work? Yeah, there's actually two ways that that works. So we actually offer an edge computing um, map generation. So uh, one of the things that we can do is we can actually capture the data live from the drone. Uh, and while the drone's in the air, it, come, it comes over a radio signal. So you can capture um, up to basically 1080p like imagery from the drone off of that, which is a much lower resolution than what you could get with uh, the actual photos that are captured because the photos are, you know, uh, they have cameras, uh, uh, well, like the standard camera is generally about a 20 megapixel camera. Uh, so those get saved into the SD card on the drone. And then when the drone lands, we can actually wirelessly um, take the data from the SD card, transfer it to your phone, and then upload it to the cloud, um, which works for smaller number of images. If you are, uh, you know, wanting, running a mission where you're trying to capture uh, in the range of thousands of images, it's actually going to be faster for you to take that SD card home and uh, 
uploaded over your home internet connection. But, uh, but yeah, the, so we, you know, we call it live map is the name of the uh, edge edge mapping solution we have. And it's really great for actually getting the data there real time in the field. And you can see that, uh, but for people who are looking for very accurate representations, like measurements and things like that, if you're trying to measure, you know, the volume of a stockpile, for instance, uh, that's where the kind of the, uh, the server side processing that we do to process those maps is, is more accurate. So you use public cloud on the backside when you're doing the server processing? We do. So we, uh, we work with both uh, AWS and Google Cloud. Um, and uh, both of those providers have some, uh, some characteristics that, that we like and some strengths in, uh, in certain areas. With, uh, we are a, Drone Deploy has always been a, uh, a very heavy Kubernetes shop, uh, even before I arrived here. Uh, and we process somewhere in the range of about 150,000 Kubernetes jobs a month. Uh, and we, uh, so for that workload, we run that on, uh, on top of GCP, uh, in, in Google Kubernetes engine. Um, we've been really impressed with, uh, where GK, JK, GKE is at versus the, the rest of the marketplace. Um, and so we run an auto scaling cluster in GKE to manage, um, all of those jobs that are creating sort of constantly spinning up and tearing down nodes and um, have been uh, been running that <clears throat> running that on GKE this entire year uh, with uh, with a lot of success and not a lot of maintenance from our DevOps team, which has been phenomenal for uh, for us. So we we were having a pretty hot ratio of engineers to DevOps. We have about it's about a fifteen to one ratio on uh, engineer to DevOps, which is a hard ratio to uh, to manage. And, uh, but we really would prefer to have our uh, engineering team building features for our customers as opposed to building internal ops tooling. So uh, we've, we've, been, we've been lucky to, that some of the managed services from the cloud providers have, uh, have come a long way in the past few years, and we've been able to adopt those and use those as a strategic advantage for us. Any serverless um, needs or um, workloads that you're dealing with, uh, image recognition, anything of that sort? We, we do have a few serverless workloads that we've deployed. Um, you know, I think serverless as a technology has a ton of promise um, for certain use cases. Um, but other use cases, I don't think serverless is quite there yet. Uh, so you mentioned you've got 50 engineers, maybe half of which are remote um, tips and tricks and things that matter to you from a remote workforce standpoint? Yeah. Um, remote's, remote's been interesting. It's been a key, kind of a key strategy that I've been able to apply, uh, you know, as I've managed some teams in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, one, I think the one of the great things about uh, introducing remote people into your team is, you know, you really have the capability to go out there and get the best. Um, and it doesn't really matter, you know, where that person's geographically located. Uh, I, I've had an opportunity to find engineers who work in the most amazing, uh, most amazing random places that you would find. And I think that's, that's the key that talent is, is really everywhere. Uh, for me, one of the great things that also too, we're really about mode and I talk a lot about diversity with my team. And I think traditionally when people talk about diversity, uh, in tech, they're really talking about, you know, kind of like, what are your diversity metrics? You know, uh, how, how is your team dispersed? And, and really the thing that I, you know, preach to my team is cognitive diversity. 
you know, we really don't want a, a bunch of people on the team who are all thinking the exact same way and have the same hive mind and approach to problem because our users aren't like that. Our users are diverse. We have users in construction and agriculture and mining and who come from all varieties of backgrounds. And, you know, it just so happens also that when you need cognitive diversity, it really helps if you actually have diversity in other areas such as, you know, ethnic and gender diversity and stuff like that, because that is also makes up your users. So, but really it's about making sure that we're not thinking the same way and that we're designing software for all users. And um, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that's something that we talk about. And so the remote team, I think, uh, is, is, is phenomenal. We try to bring the remote team here four times a year uh, to work with the uh, entire team and we call it an onsite week. And, uh, you know, every single person on the engineering team says that's their favorite week of the quarter, every, every quarter, because we're able to get everybody in here working together. We do a bunch of events when everybody's here. Uh, we start to do some planning for the next quarter. Uh, and it's really, it's really worked out well for our team. Now, obviously the downsides with, uh, you know, remote engineering is that, you know, you miss, uh, you know, I think what everybody traditionally calls the water cooler conversations, right? Where, you know, you just happen to be walking around. And so we try to do a lot of things around collaboration there where, um, where, we, where we share things in Slack uh, and have more discussions there. Uh, I do think that there are some challenges with Slack that the, the industry will, uh, you know, eventually come around to. Slack can also be a, Slack can also be a distraction. Uh, and, you know, if you're constantly expected to be online and responding to people's uh, Slack chats, then, uh, you know, it's going to distract you from the work that you're trying to do. I actually found a huge benefit to my personal productivity when I turned off all Slack notifications uh, earlier this year, uh, something that I've been suggesting to a lot of people. It's really, uh, it's, it's pretty rare if somebody sends you a Slack message and it needs to be responded to right away. So if you start to think about Slack more like email, you know, asynchronous workflow as opposed to real time, it actually starts to work out pretty well. But then you still kind of have that information sharing aspect that, that you get with it and you can read it on your own time. Yeah. And it comes down to often, you know, sort of going, I'm going to do Slack during these blocks of time and otherwise close it and answer all your messages and all your reminders. And it, it ultimately isn't that different than the way you really should discipline your time management regardless of tool. You could sit there all day and reply to messages, but you wouldn't get anything done. Exactly, yeah. So I've, I, I turned off all notifications, and I actually hide my toolbar on my Mac so that I can't see when I have any uh, that, that have come in either. So uh, it, it's actually worked out really well from a, in, avoiding an interruption standpoint. So I ask everybody, you know, we're obviously we're in the business of evaluating and you know bringing on the, the very best software engineers like you said regardless of, of geography although it does skew very heavily in the US um, you know we have a, a really rigorous system you know all levels of interviews and tests and reviews and reference checks um, and yet we know you know there are a lot of heuristics out there so I'd like to ask all the tech leads that we have on what are your heuristics how do you guys you know sort of um, evaluate the very best engineers that you want to add to your team? Yeah, I mean, I did, so for me, when you're interviewing somebody, I mean, you know, the simplest way that you can figure out if somebody is going to be good at their job is to give them an opportunity to do that job and uh, see how well they do. And so obviously, you know, there's a huge demand for engineering talent. And so you can't just bring somebody in for a week and uh, let them work in your environment, although I'm sure some people try to do that. Um, but, it, you know, it's generally pretty hard because most people have jobs. And so we generally do a, a take-home test um, as kind of the first step, and we try to make that take-home test to be like fairly lightweight. 
Uh, so, you know, maybe you invest about an hour or two worth of time in that. Um, and uh, we, the next kind of step in that process is that we'll actually bring somebody in and we'll just do some pair programming with them. Um, we, I, we try to avoid any sort of whiteboarding uh, type interviews. Um, I was actually working with some students that we, we bring in some students from uh, Hack Reactor type programs uh, to drone deploy and we help train them for whiteboard interviews. Um, basically because, uh, you know, we want to do something good for kind of the community and, uh, we, we, we are not fans of whiteboard interviews, but uh, a lot of companies are doing them. So we're trying to help those people out, uh, so that they can go out and be successful when they do interview. Um, but yeah, so, you know, kind of through that, you know, take home test process and, and the, the pair programming, you know, it lets people do the things that they would normally do when they're coding, which is, you know, look up stuff on Stack Overflow, which is, you know, I'm doing all the time when I'm programming. And that doesn't mean that, that I'm not a successful programmer. Uh, so, you know, I, I think through that process, we've, we've been fairly effective in, in finding uh, candidates who kind of, kind of fit our workflow and, um, you know, those, those initial steps. And then obviously we kind of do the standard, uh, you know, standard, uh, you know, normal, like, person-to-person interviews after after those steps. But really, the, the take-home tests, I think, and the pair, pair exercise have really been uh, keys to us finding good people. And it's not all about the, the technical, I imagine. You know, what, do, what are the soft skills and such that you're looking for, you know, in that process that you're going to bring out? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I always tell people, look, the most important thing about, like, when you're working through some sort of problem is not necessarily that you immediately come to the right answer, it's it's talking about how you're actually coming to your conclusions and uh you know there are some engineers right who will go and get a problem and they'll think for five minutes and not say a word and then just write down the perfect solution and that's great that's okay uh there are very few of us who who can actually do that i would not include myself as one of those um but you know basically what you're trying to do is you work through that so like we we preach a lot of soft skills here um because as you know, we've gone through we've gone through some a few cycles of growth growth here as we've kind of ramped up to about fifty engineers and uh, you know my team at Salesforce was much larger than that and uh, in the size of a thirty five hundred person organization and I think the uh, the thing that you really learn is uh, you know things like collaboration and alignment and stuff become very uh, very important you know can you take some semi-critical feedback on a PR and turn it into a positive discussion, right? Those are, those are the types of things that, you know, you're kind of looking for there. And really, you know, through that, that pair inter, that pair process, um, you, you kind of get to see some of those things, you know, how this person thinks and, you know, can they, can they describe to you what are the, uh, what are the kind of the next steps as they go to figure out a problem? So, so we definitely look for those things. We have some kind of some internal scoring criteria that we use to, to kind of judge that. I actually talked to another CTO that one of their steps in this process is they issue a PR to the candidate in order to see how they will react and give the feedback for what is obviously wrong in the PR. <laughs> yeah. So we, we've done that too. Uh, and, uh, I, I think generally the only issue there is what happens is all of your, your take home tests become public, uh, unless you want to like give somebody access to like a private repo temporarily, and then you have to keep writing more take home tests. Uh, so, so we, we, we've, we've stopped doing that. We've used kind of other, other tools, but, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's obviously the best, that would be the one of the best ways to do it for sure. Awesome. Well, Eric, good spending time with you, man. Appreciate your insights today. Yeah. Great. Happy to talk to you. 
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.